Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. everyone and welcome to Reformed Podmatics. My name is Pastor Mark. And I am Pastor Zach. And we thank you so much for joining us here and spending some time with us in this virtual world, listening to some of our thoughts on matters of the Christian faith. Um, We are really privileged to have so many people who continue to listen, and um, we don't take this responsibility lightly, but... um, at the same time, is a real enjoyment for us to uh, to continue to make these podcasts so that they're a blessing to you, our listeners. So thanks for joining us, and yeah. um, hopefully today we have a blessing for you in the conversation that we are going to be having around this topic of personal identity. And um, just to give you the outline here of some of the things that we're going to talk about, uh, we'll get into why this is important. I think that that would probably be pretty clear for anybody who's paying attention to the news. And um, next we'll get into some biblical definitions and um, really some corrections of mistaken identity often that people have, and we find much in the scripture about who we are, who we are not, um, particularly for the Christian. And then um, digging into some church history also to find what Uh, people from ages past have said on the topic of identity. Who am I? This huge question that every person, every thinking person will encounter in their life. I joked a little bit in our notes here that if the theme song of our last episode was tradition from Fiddler on the Roof, our theme song for today would be a little bit more current. Um, The Who's Who Are You? Where we're just asked. Who are you? Who are you? Tell me. I want to know. Who are you? Hopefully um, your answer is not creep by Radiohead. <laughs> yeah, I'm a creep. I'm, I'm a, creep. a loser, right? Um, <laughs> I don't belong here, right? I think is what he keeps saying that in that song, um, although I do like Radiohead. but uh, So the who asks us, who are you? And we're going to be asked that That's by the world. Question. We are going to be asked that in our in- own inner monologue constantly. Um, who am I? Um, the Christian essentially, whether we realize it or not, is going to be asking yourself that question every day. Who am I? And am I going to live into my Christian identity? Live? Uh, am I going to live as a Christian? Um, or am I going to essentially kind of reject some of the things of God's Word and try to be a person of my own making? So um, this is definitely a prescient issue for young people in particular. Uh and not just young people today, but young people, adolescents throughout all of history, Mm -hmm. as you transition from childhood into adulthood, that's the question that really you need to answer about yourself is, who am I? Um, I'm obviously from a family. I have a name. My name is Mark. But uh, those are pretty superficial things. Um, What do I think about? What do I care about? What do I desire? Hmm. Um, And who does God say I am, most importantly? Yeah, the question is, what marks you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not talking about your name. I'm talking about <laughs> people in general. What are we marked by? I think we're every human being is marked by something. And, yeah, we're all given a name. We're given an identity by our parents. But as we grow, we must, in some sense, determine who we are. Um, and discover it. This isn't yeah. to say that... Uh, our families and our our backgrounds have no part of of helping us to discover who we are, to to, to see who we are. Uh, in, in many ways, that's part of the shift of our culture from previous ages, mm. previous generations, and and from different cultures that still exist. Our Western culture finds and locates identity very much within the individual and it, within the individual determining who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and Self-discovery so, yeah, is everything. It's very, yeah. very individualistic. Whereas in other cultures, say as in Eastern cultures, mm-hmm. you are the the sort of 
social network that you're related to mm-hmm. um, and that, that you are connected to. And I'm not talking online social networks. <laughs> I'm talking real life social networks, families, friends, employers, your neighbors, your community. You are very much defined by who you're connected to, whereas in our Western culture, we're much more obsessed with, with individualism uh, and and self expression and self-definition defining who we are this is in fact what charles taylor the canadian philosopher calls uh, expressive individualism Hmm. and in this culture we are supposed to or in this framework the idea goes that we are to determine through often through uh, lots of strenuous uh, self-discovery of really thinking about who we are we're supposed to sort of locate the core of our identity and then express that out in the world. And anything that hampers that expression mm. is seen as being a, a negative force for evil, basically. Mm-hmm. And that we are supposed to just l- let free, live out who we say we are. And so one of my favorite songs that I've mentioned to my students a bit is Probably from not Casey. one of your favorite songs. It's not one of my favorite songs, <laughs> but it's my favorite song to use in explaining yeah, this. Yeah. Uh, it's by Casey Musgraves. It's called Follow Your Arrow. And it's she just says the chorus says so make lots of noise kiss lots of boys or kiss lots of girls if that's something in your, you're into when the straight and narrow gets a little too straight roll up a joint or don't just follow your arrow wherever it points and i think i've mentioned this before on the podcast mm. uh, but it's just such a poignant and yeah. very uh perfectly worded song that gets to this idea of just be you do you mm-hmm. uh, and this is very much a part of what makes our culture our culture yeah, that's a reaction against some of the more stringent identity expectations of previous generations and um, other cultures mm-hmm. as well. There's um, there's a deconstruction happening, mm-hmm. and the deconstruction in terms of identity is no one can tell you who you are. Right. Um, no one can proclaim anything over your life, and so mm-hmm. that's probably... <laughs> that has all sorts of implications for listening to preaching, for example. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, you, you, you have to discover what's inside. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a reaction in a lot of ways against. Um, there's, there's things in European culture too um, that determine who you are based on external factors. The song by U2, "Where the Streets Have No Name," is about mm-hmm. Ireland and how in Ireland, what street you're from determines if you're Protestant or Catholic. Hmm. And so in Belfast and Northern Ireland, that means everything. If somebody sees your address that you're from Downey Street or something like that, you must be Catholic and you hmm. and I'm your enemy if I'm a Protestant. And so yeah. you two writes this song where the streets have no name and it hmm. sort of shatters that identity marker. That's the whole point of the song. And it's profound and it's it's good it's a sort of a song about heaven right in the way that it's uh there's streets of gold there and it doesn't yeah. matter um which street you're from because we're all yeah. one in christ i i don't know if that's exactly where they go with the song but it is uh certainly sort of the world that you two wants to work towards in the writing of that song and that's just one example what street you're from um my wife pam had a japanese roommate in college and so in japan people can often tell your social status by your last name. And so there are last names that are of a higher uh, caste, you might say, in society. And she had a very good last name, a very admirable last name. And so... And if, how does that develop? Do you know? Uh, there would, I, I don't know exactly, but um, it, it was clear that, um, that she had a good name. And um, <laughs> that means nothing in our American yeah, culture, so of strange. course, right? <laughs> um, but... You're going to see that in, like you said, a lot of Eastern cultures. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean strange as if it's bad. It's just so it, different. It's so it is, yeah, very different. Um, and and definitely you, you see that in some Western cultures too. Where um, I was talking with my German brother-in-law once, and uh, she had a Bismarck in her class, and so um, descended from this general von Bismarck. I think it was von Bismarck. Hmm. And that was just so exciting for their family to have a von Bismarck in my niece's class. (laughs) And you see the same kind of thing, right? Where a last name, um, means something about their identity and how important this person is. 
Um, And we don't have that because American culture has, by and large, deconstructed that. Um, And that's not always a good deconstruction. I I would say generally it's a good thing that people aren't just known by their last name or what street they're from um, because that doesn't really say who you are. You want to be known for Mm -hmm. your personality and your gifts, your strengths, your... Um, in some cases, your weaknesses that you're working on and Christ is being glorified as you grow and as a person. Um, but yeah. at, at the same time, that's just descended into utter individualism. And this is a big problem. Yeah. I, I, I think one of the issues in our American culture, too, is that because of that sort of leveling effect, where now you sort of get to define who you are through through hard work or through fame or through riches that you hopefully can acquire you know that's the american dream uh that's that people begin to try to mm. uh cr- eclectically create their identities by what they can achieve what they can do and so i think one of the one of the inherent truths or one of the baseline truths we can start with here is that we're all marked by something as mm. i was saying mm-hmm. where everybody is is attaching their personal identity to something uh, and that's biblical. And that's a biblical thing. Yeah. Uh, and so in in different times, different periods, uh, people would have been mostly marked by occupation and by their place in the caste system or uh, their place in just society's ranks, so to speak. Uh, and now while we don't have a caste system uh, or we, do, we don't have any different sort of rankings, People still strive to mark themselves and to set themselves uh, into a certain group by giving themselves a certain identity, uh, different markers, and hopefully through the myriad markers you can collect over time, you can really fully, perfectly express yourself to the world, and people can, can clearly see this. And I think one of the most interesting ways that this happens is through clothing, mm. Uh we live in a culture where one of the most fundamental parts that we think of identity is how we express ourselves through our clothing. And so it's common for people to buy things with a certain brand, a certain color, certain style. And so people can, without even knowing them, can get a feel Mm -hmm. for who they are by their clothing. Clothing is no longer uh, something that is just worn out of necessity (laughs) or out of function but it's something that's worn out of self-expression and there's no escaping this. This touches everyone now in our world. Even if you don't want your, your clothing to be self-expression, it's still going to be self-expression. And so I think that's a profound parable actually in a, <laughs> in a, in a way that I'm just realizing because hmm. your clothing is something you buy. You don't make it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So consumerism is all a part of this identity. Yeah. Thing. We and, get to create ourselves, and um, I'm like I talk a fair amount. I know about Little House books because we're reading those as a family, and mm-hmm. we're sort of just finishing one. And we just finished the chapter where they make a dress for Mary as she's getting ready to go to college, hmm. and how the whole family made the dress together. Pa was out working, but all the girls were contributing to the making of this dress. It's going to make Mary look so beautiful, hmm. and how, in a way, that does represent this family that made this thing they made it together but now who makes their clothes anymore it's it's a identity or a logo or something that's produced somewhere else that we put on yeah and um that is significant i think in in the formation of one's identity we're no longer made by the things outside of us but we are making ourselves uh, we're, we're choosing sort of a, yeah. a la carte from society what what we're going to consume and what is going to represent us, and it's nothing that we even made. Yeah, that's and so this <laughs> I have as we come up come to this discussion on identity, I have a lot of Charles Taylor's thinking mm. in my mind, mostly mediated through different authors. I've not read a secular age all the way through. I own it, but. It's a doorstopper of a book, <laughs> and so I've not read it, but I've read other books on it by various thinkers, mm. and so one of the ideas that Taylor gets across, and for me, I've read it through others who explain Taylor, like Jamie Smith and his book, How Not to Be Secular, mm-hmm. sort of Charles Taylor for dummies like me, 
uh, he gets at how t- for Taylor, this is the difference between a mimetic culture, a culture that tries to meme and tries to, mm-hmm. or not, not not meme, but to mime, but to, to sort of like to pantomime. It sort sure. of is trying to live into a tradition. And so it, it sees this external a standard. way of living a standard yeah. and tries to live up to it. He says that now we live in, in a poetic or po- poetic uh, uh, culture, which is a culture of poiesis. And in Greek is this idea of making, of building. Um, mm. And so we live in a culture where we make ourselves, we define ourselves, we build our sort of our brand. Even we see this, this is perfectly seen on Instagram. People try to build their personal brand. Mm. Uh, by just perfectly curating their feeds <laughs> so that they can express the, who they are at their core visually through their Instagram. Yeah. And this is almost inescapable. If you have an Instagram, that's kind of what everybody's doing yeah. with, with social media. And so yeah, the you question, do that without even realizing it at a certain point. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that's how everybody else in, is interpreting it as they're reading it is how you're putting yourself out there. Sure. It's, it's This is an interesting part of the reason generationally why older people on the internet <laughs> you can speak of our parents or our grandparents you know if you're a millennial like me who when they use the internet they're not really thinking about it in such a self-expressionistic no. way uh it's at a, least it's it's different it's uh, a transfer of information right often yeah and it's not so much a hey see who i am at my core see who, yeah. who i really think that i am it's more so just here's a news article i thought was interesting or here's like a funny picture of a cat uh and it's just sort of more of a communal thing instead of a self-expression thing Mm -hmm. which we really see with millennials and and gen z right now well and i think it's good to say it's not as though one one type of thinking is good and the other is bad like i think that's one of the struggles that people get caught up in is they say they would say well the the sort of system that i'm supposed to or the standard that i'm supposed to live up to that's the bad one and Mm -hmm. we need to be forming and making who we are and sort of determining that for ourselves Mm -hmm. or the the other side probably more conservative type people like us would Mm -hmm. might be tempted to say no the standard is the good one that's objective and the For self formation, self discovery—that's su- too subjective. That's um, I don't know. The Bible is perfectly weighted in that regard, where there is a personal uh, discovery. Um, we'll get into that when we talk about Augustine and Calvin. Um, there's a lot of self discovery that needs to happen, um, and that's a good thing. Yeah, and self discovery is not inherently evil, or right? Wrong. And even there, you need to develop into. Uh, who God made you particularly to be. And that isn't always going to be determined by your last name or the town you're from or your race or um, your hobbies yeah. and so forth. Yeah. And so um, there is an objective standard. That's Christ. That's the mm-hmm. word of God. Um, but for different people, um, that's going to be experienced. I wouldn't say in completely different ways, but mm-hmm. um, in, in different ways nonetheless yeah that's an interesting truth to dig into a little bit and we'll get to it a little bit later when we look at the history of of how identity has been conceived throughout church history uh but Mm. yeah the bible has both commands and it demands for how we live our lives and that's objective that's true for everybody Uh, all christians should be held to the same moral standard the Mm -hmm. same moral framework uh which is god's law but at the same time, Christians are not, we're not all supposed to become automatons, the little robots who all mm-hmm. look the exact same and mm-hmm. who live and think uh, and, and behave in the exact same way as we are persons. We are individuals. We are unique. That is all true. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one quick example that comes to mind off the top of my head is the gifts in, yeah. in 1 Corinthians 12. Sure. Every Christian is gifted differently. And these gifts all work together. They work as a body. One body, many parts. Right. So you, yep. if if the hand says, like, I wish I was, you know, I wish I was a leg, that that's not a good thing. The hand needs to be a hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the hand, the hand shouldn't also think that it's more important than the eye. 
um, and vice versa. So all, all parts of the Christian body have a part to play, mm-hmm. and we all need to be unique and different for it to work well. Yeah, and the way that we become the body of Christ is through Christ. And so yeah. I think that is where there is a certain amount of standard of objective truth that one must accept in order to be a Christian. Um, we, we can't be only self-discoverers um, in, in the sense of maybe an Eastern religion, yoga, New Ageism, um, explore who you are within and you'll come to some state of enlightenment or nirvana or whatever they would call it. Um, we need to die to ourselves and be risen with Christ. And so Galatians 2.20 is one of the central texts. It's mm-hmm. the first one that both Zach and I thought about when we were going to be mm-hmm. tackling this topic of identity. Who am I? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So that is a pretty serious self-rejection, self-denial. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to die. There's something profound and um, core to my identity that needs to die. That is my sinful nature and my desire for sin. So I must die. That that part of me which drives all my desires must die, and I must be risen with Christ so that it's no longer I even who lives, but it's Christ who is at work in me. And mm-hmm. I know that maybe to a secular person, that will sound like... It's cook- destruction. It will sound like cookie cutter. You know, it will oh, sound yeah. like uh, um, just sort of self-flagellation, and you're just trying to turn me into the the cookie, you know, that gets cut from the same mm-hmm. um, shape, uh, and everyone will then be the same. Uh, that's not necessarily or completely true it is true in the sense that we must be like christ yeah so paul even finishes that that verse he says in the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me yeah so very clearly in paul's thinking i and me are still there it's not as if i now just become a a robot controlled uh from a remote a remote christ (laughs) uh or I i think of uh there's certain parasites that uh, get into ants' brains. Have you ever heard about these? No. And they control the brain of the ant. But basically, oh. the, the ant is dead, but the body is still being used by wow. the parasite. Crazy. And the, it controls the ant and causes the ant to go up to the tip of the of the stem of grass and to chomp onto it and to hang there until it's eaten by some sort of rabbit or critter. And then, oh, the, and cy- then the, the cycle can go. continues. Wow. Um, and so it's very interesting, and that is not how the Christian is. The Christian is not just completely uh, gone. Yeah, Our outside of yourself all of a sudden, yeah. It's that we are our sinful flesh, and this is an idea that's very clear all throughout Paul's writing, is that for the Christian there is, there are, there's a, a war, an inner war happening between the sinful nature, uh, which he calls the flesh, and between that of the spirit, that is, the, the nature of rebirth uh, that has been caused in the Christian by Christ. Yeah, and we, we could get pretty serious, too, on this topic and say, if a person, we talked about this a lot in Repentance, um, if a person just does not exude any hint of repentance, of a need to die to yourself and be risen with Christ, that person is not a Christian. That person does not understand God, the holiness of God, the work of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the value of Christ's death and resurrection, and they're showing they don't really understand themselves and their sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how the Institutes begin, by basically saying one must understand God in all his perfection, and one must un- understand yourself in all your wretchedness. And and that is uh, not a word that gets thrown around very often. The catechism talks about misery. Um, that's question and answer two of the catechism. Yeah. I must know how great my sin and misery are, and then I must know also the work of Christ that delivers me and how I am to respond to this deliverance. So, yeah. um, so that's uh, that sounds pretty... Uh, kind of like a hard line and maybe some thick boundaries, but um, certainly 
the scriptures teach we must die to ourselves. Um, I'd say this is probably one of the big errors in the kind of motivational speaker types of sermons that a lot of people like is that those sermons make you seem pretty good and you're doing good. You're fine. Yeah, some, um, some challenges. Yeah, some you, obstacles. You, you got some tweaking to do that, that mm-hmm. God needs to make some adjustments in your life. And here's the book, the Bible that is going to make those adjustments for you. And so you're, you're doing real good. You know, you're, you're, you're doing great. Um, God's not mad at you. You know, all those sort of cliches that, that they throw out. <laughs> um, you're doing your best. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big thing for moms in particular. Mm-hmm. That, that is women's ministry to a T right now is affirm. Um, you're doing great. You're trying your best. And, and things might not be so good sometimes. But here are the little tweaks that you could make. And that becomes the point of a church. Um, socially, you can get together with people who make little adjustments to your life and can come alongside you and encourage you. Uh, that is not Christian ministry. That could be a part of it to to encourage is is absolutely a part of it. But the gospel requires that every person um, believe of our depravity, of our sin, of the we are a slave to sin, and um, you know Christ delivers us from that into one who is going to serve Him instead. It's no longer I who live that slave to sin is dead. Um, but it's Christ now who lives in me, and that's life. That's um, the the fountain of living water that flows from within us. Is is of course comes from receiving the living water of Christ. So um, it it starts with some humility. Hmm. This question about identity must begin with a recognition of my own mistakes and sin and rebelliousness. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that quote from Calvin. Uh, because that quote often gets badly misquoted. Uh, or it's not even quoted. The idea is the presented idea of, often. Yeah, well, they, they sort of strip it from what he's actually saying. And, yeah. And if anybody has read it, you know that he's saying, <laughs> to know God, you must know self, and to know self, you must know God. And it's sort of a mystery how that works out. But what he also says in that context is that when you know yourself you will realize your depravity and your sin mm-hmm. and your need for god often it's only left at when people are talking about this quote in order to know god well you got to know yourself and even calvin says that right mm-hmm. right right <laughs> and so a couple of years ago i saw this uh in person uh at a youth workers convention and it was a writer who was the sort of he was the plenary speaker or one of the few and he was giving the first full-length uh, message of the of the weekend, and it was on the Enneagram. And he used that point from Calvin that if you want to know God, you got to know yourself. And so we should know ourselves. Uh, we should set about to know who we really are. And so often this is a cause for celebration of the self. Get to know all your virtuous parts. Now, to be fair, the Enneagram and those who teach it. Uh, often will say that the Enneagram will, will draw you also to be aware of your faults, to be aware mm-hmm. of your weak areas. But it's this is all, I think, part of a larger cultural trend of the desire to, to celebrate oneself, to know oneself, to celebrate oneself, and, and then to look for recognition. Or even say people. that's t- what God is like. Yeah. So yeah. it's like the good that is within me is like what that's what God is like. Yeah. And so if I want to know who God is, I must look within myself and see my own good things. Yeah. And then I can sort of project that on onto God. And that is That's the opposite of what Calvin is that saying. That is not good theology. <laughs> and it's the opposite of Galatians two twenty, too, of of needing to be crucified with Christ. Right. And uh and just as we were talking to you before the uh we hit record here, um it's not just a different or subtly changed um, uh, idea from the gospel itself. It is opposite to the gospel. So it is absolutely opposed to the gospel to say that, like, you know, what this guy did is John Calvin was saying, you need to know your personality. And when you know your personality, you can discover who God is. That is the opposite of what John Calvin is saying. Mm-hmm. He's saying discover 
your sin. I mean, the words that Calvin uses in the beginning of the Institutes are, um, when we look to ourselves, he says, we will find weakness, wretchedness, futility, and greed. And then he continues, our evil ways make us think of all the good things of God. So we contrast ourselves to God. We don't compare ourselves to God. We, it's a contrast when you know your, your sinful nature and how sinful you are before God. You will seek God. Uh, Calvin also says we can never really seek him in earnest until we begin to despair of ourselves. So again, it's the opposite approach um, to the one who says discover your personality so that you'll be able to know God a little bit better. No, discover your sin and look to Christ as the remedy. Yeah, so if we were to move then from what Calvin is saying into sort of our own time period, our own context. Somebody was to ask you, Mark, mm. who are you? How do you identify? What would you tell them? And how would also would we encourage people uh, to, to answer that question? Well, where do we start with that? Yeah, as a Reformed pastor, I, I love the word regeneration. So hmm. it's about yeah. being, regeneration is a reference to, of course, John 3, being born again. One must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so um, I would, I would want to say I am born again in Christ that by faith, uh, by grace, through faith, uh, I have been made new by Christ into this new creation. The old is gone. Um my my own nature, my identity, is who God says I am, um, and that, according to the Bible, is is the new creation. And I like what Calvin says later in the Institutes: where he, When God reconciles us to Himself by the righteousness of Christ, He grants us the free pardon of sin and regards us as righteous. Hmm. So. Uh, the more I know my sin, the more that I know that what I've been saved from and what I uh, am no longer a slave to. And so, yeah, uh, yeah I, I would want to talk a lot about regeneration. I've been justified by Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that I love the gospel, one of the reasons, there are many, is it's a humbling um, faith that we hold on to as Christians. Oh, yeah. it, Calvinism is a humbling faith. And... Honestly, that's why a lot of people don't like it very much. Uh, that's why a lot of people don't like Augustine. He's too serious about um, sin and depravity and particularly original sin that we're born with. Um, and it makes it, it seems to some people like a downer, but I would agree with Calvin and say, when I sin, I become thankful to God for <laughs> that that isn't what I'm owned by, that isn't what I'm characterized necessarily by anymore is sin. But, but by grace now. Yeah. I love to, to, to tell people that I am a Christian. Yeah. And I think that word is a fitting word. Sure. Often that word, people want to dismiss that word. Uh, what does it mean anymore? It means too many things. It's too bogged down. It has too much baggage. Sure. But the word means I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. It means that I am a little Christos. I'm a little Christ. Not that I am Christ, but that I am, I am marked by him. Uh, mm-hmm. he is my identity. Uh, there's no competing identity. There's nothing that is as deep. I think passages like the one we looked at from Galatians 2, uh, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That's a maximalizing statement about where our identity mm-hmm. is to be. It's not to be in our favorite sports team. Go Tottenham Hotspurs. <laughs> it's not to be in our favorite music. Uh, this for me in high school was like my my way of marking myself off as being you know really you know I I had the best music collection I knew the mm. good stuff and mm-hmm. people would come to me for musical recommendations for the deep cuts yeah I had the good <laughs> stuff I had this really ugly MP3 player back then but that's neither here nor there <laughs> uh, it's not to mark your, yourself off with the best Instagram page or mm-hmm. or anything like that. It is to be fully conscious that you are owned and and you are 
a slave, a doulos, a servant of Christ, mm. that you are marked by him, he is your master, and that your identity is joyfully in him, yeah. uh, and there's nothing else that can compete with that identity. But this leads us then to sort of how, sort of the conversation that we we're trying to get at in the past few episodes of especially when we're turning and looking at um, the modern morality shift taking place, not only in our culture, but in our church. Uh, when we, when we think about the, the growing movement inside of the broader Christian church for increasing the acceptance and affirmation of uh, LGBTQ persons in our churches Often, I, I think what is what is happening. One of the one of the big errors of of such a movement is that they they are locating often many of them, many of them who are pro LGBTQ in the church, are locating their identity almost first and foremost mm-hmm. in their gay or lesbian uh, or transgender identity. That is almost the the supra identity the, yeah yeah the supra identity and yeah. it begins to seem as though that identity is competing uh, and that there is a desire to bring their two identities uh, into harmony when those two identities aren't compatible yeah. we would say well people do that on their twitter feed now with their bio line right it's <laughs> it's the she her thing so yeah. um or well, people do that on their bio line without the she her. People define themselves on right mm-hmm. there. That's this is these are the six or eight words that I am going to be known by. Yep, um, that's a good point. And uh, they signal uh, she her um, or they them or I don't know what all the pronouns are. I guess, but um, they signal not only what they want to be known by, but they're they're also saying. That is the most, the most important part of my identity is that I sort of also identify with you. So mm-hmm. um, even you know somebody who isn't uh, transgender, for example, would want to signify solidarity. Yeah, solidarity with that movement by posting yeah. those kinds of things. And um, you know, we we don't want to get super political, I suppose, with some of those things. But mm-hmm. people do in that context. They are signaling what kind of identity is most important to them not just within, but um, that other people would understand that about their identity as well, hmm. um, which gets really to uh, another text, Galatians three twenty six through 29, probably the yeah. most debated text <laughs> in the Bible in concerning identity. Um, yeah. And so I'll just read Galatians 3. And even humanity and humanness, what it means to be human, right. often goes down to this verse. And, and what it means to be Christian in particular. So... Uh, Paul writes in Galatians, and again, I believe it was Paul who wrote this in Galatians. That's important to say. Um, (laughs) You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so even stopping there, he says, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, that includes women. And why would he say you're all sons of God? Because it has to do with being an heir, being an heir to all of the righteousness, salvation, peace, the promises, joy of Christ. You are heir of all of those things. So he's saying you're all sons of God. You're all first sons, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, who are going to receive the full inheritance um, of salvation through Christ. He says, for all of you were baptized into Christ. That gets to that marking that Zach was talking about. Um, You're all baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so that central verse there, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, um, is that Does that debated. mean that there's, <laughs> there is no such thing as a, a male or female? We're all just exactly the same? That's what people are saying now. They're saying this destroys the gender binary. This is like the the proto-evangelion for the trans movement in a lot of ways. Um, again, the proto-evangelion is a reference to Genesis 3 where there's that little yeah. glimpse of of salvation in the garden, right? The, yeah. The, the, it's the, the prototype <laughs> of, of the gospel. This is, so, yeah, yeah the prototype. Yeah, it would be like the proto-trans sort of 
statement, text, I guess, in the Bible um, yeah. for some people, which um, maybe maybe it's a little bit of a detour, but I do want to say that there is this thing called eisegesis. Um, and eisegesis means that you read something into the text that absolutely isn't there. Yeah. Exegesis means you're pulling truth out of the text. X and, out. Yeah, and so a pastor will exegete scripture, will pull the truth out, and um, will present it plainly to the congregation in a sermon. Mm-hmm. Eisegeting it is to say, I've got these ideas that are I think are right, and so I'm going to read them into the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what's happening with Galatians 3 um, with the, the current uh, progressive liberal LGBTQ plus movement where people will say, um, okay, uh, I, I reject the gender binary, and so I'm going to look for a verse that seems to be doing that, and then they're going to go to Galatians 3. And that's absolutely not what is happening here. Um, the same Paul who wrote Galatians also wrote Titus and wrote mm-hmm. Ephesians. Mm-hmm. And in both of those books of the Bible, there are particular things and modes of ministry for husbands that are different than wives. Yeah. And there are different ways that ministry should be done for young women. They should be together with the older women so that they can learn how to care for their homes, says um, Paul to Titus. And, um, and so the same Paul who wrote Galatians 3 wrote Ephesians and Titus and um, needs to... And, and so we reconcile those things. Yes, we are heirs. We're all heirs. That's our identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that regard, there's no difference between male and female with regards to the quality of our salvation, the sufficiency of our salvation, the amount of peace and enjoyment that we'll have in this life in Christ and in the life to come. All of that is equal across all Christians. That's, yeah. the, that's the reference. And the real significant thing here is not that he's demolishing inequalities, which is true. He's saying that there's not really any Mm-hmm. Difference in equality between a Jew or a Greek or slave or f- free or male or female. What he's doing is saying you're all marked by Christ. And this yeah. happens through baptism. And this is why in the, in the next line, right after verse 28, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the the important thing here is that more than your Jewness or your Greekness, your slaveness or your freeness, your maleness or your femaleness, mm-hmm. You are marked by Christ. You are his, and therefore he is the core of your identity. And his lordship should have an effect over all areas of your life. And you should conceive of this as being the deepest part of who you are because it is. It's not whether or not you you think it is. If you are a follower of Christ, it absolutely is, objectively. And so... Yeah, we can think of like a Venn diagram. Uh, hmm. When I preached on gender, yeah, I used helpful. I used a Venn diagram and and how for a Christian, like if you think of female as a bubble and male as a bubble, I wish people could see you know a <laughs> diagram actually instead of me just describing it. But people could imagine a Venn diagram where the two bubbles intersect at different points, right? And those bubbles are almost completely overlapping. We would say hmm. as Christians. Um, I think that's what this is we're getting at. There are, um, and and in within that overlapping part of the bubble is salvation is the same. The Ten mm-hmm. Commandments are the same. Uh, the fruits of the Spirit are the same for men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, they were called. We're all called into that Christ-like life, mm-hmm. and that is going to cover the vast, vast majority of human experience. Um, on the fringes where there are differences, which we do believe there are differences in our, certainly in our complementarian context, we believe there are different roles that men and women are called to serve in and live in. That's sort of the fringe that would separate male roles from female roles in mm-hmm. um, something as obvious and simple as having babies, right, mm-hmm. will be different and will be experienced very differently between men and women. Um, that's not just theological that's biological so yeah um and psychological i would say also um so thinking of the venn diagram there is vast vast overlap between men and women 
and then on the fringes on the outside there there are differences and um galatians 3 doesn't shatter those differences and say that they don't exist Hmm. yeah that's that is a really interesting and important passage uh because yeah that's that's exactly what what happens i see this a lot and in fact this this passage more than many others i think it probably is the most used passage that i know of in arguing uh against complementarianism mm-hmm. yeah uh, as a framework for male female relationships but even for uh women's ordination yeah. and ministry yeah uh because it appears that that paul is is totally putting everybody on a level playing field and so if there is no difference between male or female, then why are we making a distinction? But again, that's impo- it's important that you mention that this book is a book by Paul. Yeah. Uh, and so his teaching elsewhere helps us to understand what he's saying here and what also what he's, what he's not saying in this passage. Yeah, there's so much that's misunderstood because, and partly it's because of complementarians like us misrepresenting our own theology and often people being pushed away from it by, uh, again, to use the Venn diagram, it's almost like there's very little overlap, and that's just sort of where Jesus is. But men and women are so different. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus, you know, was the book in, was it, the the 90s. Um, And and that's the way that complementarians can sometimes talk. Like men and women are so different, and our experience of Christ is so different, and our roles in the church are so different that... um, that it does a real disservice to our unity at a, at a certain point in Christ. And it actually um, does betray some of the meaning of the text of Galatians 3, I would say. Mm-hmm. That that diagram overlaps greatly. And, and we I think that we need to probably emphasize that more than some of the differences at a certain point. Uh, yeah, when it comes to our identities, we're all of us except for a very few of the human population are either male or female. There sure. is such a thing as intersex, but the vast majority of human people are are male or female. And that is that should be a part of our of our identity because of our identity in Christ. Uh, but this this isn't to say as you're saying that if you're a male you're ab- you absolutely should have no feminine attributes yeah, or vice right. versa and I, I would i would make this argument though this may be confusing to some complementarians um but, but men are called to be a part of the bride of christ yeah and so men should see themselves as being a bride as being uh, that's obviously a feminine thing yeah women in the church are called to be sons so there's a mixing of these these metaphors a little bit that Mm -hmm. gives nuance and colors in a little bit a bit of this and so and the point is not to appeal to some sort of gender binary destruction right yeah that's sort of what that that i mean totally not somebody could isolate that audio right zach and and, oh yeah and and interpret that in all (laughs) kinds of insane ways but i absolutely agree with everything you just said that yeah. Um, because of the great overlap because in, within Christianity, because of Galatians three and the Ten Commandments and um, the fruits of the Spirit and the Sermon on the Mount and just about every sermon that I've ever preached being mm-hmm. directed towards men and women, mm-hmm. um, because of that, uh, we are going at times to have to think like you and I are going to have to think: How is Queen Esther a great model of faith for us? Mm-hmm. How? How are um, Eunice and Lois um, a great model for us as men? Yeah. Um, and or Amy Carmichael, or yeah, or, or Monica, anybody through or history, Macrina, uh, Mother Teresa, yeah, Mother Teresa. How are they a model for us? And mm-hmm. obviously, the woman is always doing that with Christ, who is a man, um, mm-hmm. and with Paul and Peter and Augustine and Calvin and so forth. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I think that's the nature of Genesis three. It's to say you, you Galatians are three. Or, sorry, yeah, <laughs> Genesis three, maybe a little bit too. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Galatians three uh, is that you're 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 one in Christ, and um, all of it is the same salvation. Uh, that, by the way, is not the case for the Mormon or for the Muslim. 
it's a different salvation qualitatively um, for men and for women. And so that this teaching really shatters that in a way because they're so different. Sexes are so different that um, they even remain um, kind of uh, in a hierarchy even in the, the life to come, which is quite sad actually and mm. and is not the case in Christian salvation or, or eschatology. So um, moving on a little bit, I think it's important also to state We've talked mostly individually um, that that you, Zach, are born again, and I am born again, and we are mm-hmm. um, we are uh, redeemed, certainly on an individual level. But the the Old Testament, which includes those individual promises for salvation, also is very clear, and the New Testament is too, in terms of being the people of God, yeah. being a member of the covenant people of God. So that really takes off in Genesis 12 with God's covenant with Abram and is confirmed, of course, through the Exodus where God says, you are my people. And he's not just talking to individuals there. He is, but he's also gathering a a corporate, a nation to himself. Um, And in the New Testament, that remains. You're you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Well, yeah, this goes back to baptism too. Baptism yeah. is a sign and seal of your covenant membership. And so through baptism, it's not, this is where we differ from the more credo-baptistic yeah, or much. the sort of megachurch view of, of baptism or the evangelical, broadly evangelical view of baptism as being something that you declare, that you say, you define who you are by being baptized and so baptism in this sense is sort of like buying the like the the Nike, you know, and wearing the Nike brand shirt or something. You're you're showing the world who you are by your alignment with mm-hmm. a certain uh ideal or belief or or what what have you. Mm-hmm. But it is a being marked by God activity. It's not something that principally where we mark ourselves, uh, but it's something where we see ourselves as being signed and sealed. God is signing and sealing. Uh, us as members of the covenant. So baptism is not an individualistic act. It is a communal act. Mm-hmm. We are being being grafted in, so to speak, through through baptism. That's what it is, is pointing to. And so, yeah, we are being marked as the people mm-hmm. of God, not just as a person of God, yeah. but we're, we, are, we are welcomed into the covenant community through baptism. And the Belgic Confession is awesome on that, um, where it notes that the children of believers are set apart from uh, the children of of unbelievers, saying that these children um, receive a blessing of now not just being baptized, but they receive the human promise from parents who are going to raise them in the way of Christ, but also the divine promise of God to bless them and and keep them and um, favor them in some ways with this constant presentation of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... And the promise of the congregation to to help guide them. One of the things I love about Reformed sacramental theology is its consistency. So baptism and communion are both communal. Mm -hmm. Um, They are both individual and communal. And... uh, Honestly, you we we could have probably shortened this whole episode just by talking about baptism and communion <laughs> and what those say about our identity. That's really Man, yeah. that's really where it is. Um, baptized in into Christ, uh, baptism, of course, ref- referencing the washing, but also the entering of community, mm-hmm. and of course at the communion table. I do come to the table, Mark. You do come to the table, Zach, and you do so as an individual. Mm-hmm. but also as a member of the community of believers. So. Yeah, it's the same way we come to the dinner table with our families at night, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We we come as individuals, little Johnny, little little Macy maybe there, whatever <laughs> their names are, and they come with their parents, and they're all sitting at the table, and they are individuals, but they are gathered in, in family and in fellowship mm-hmm. and in love, and they're united together. And in the same way, yeah, we are we are marked in baptism, which is sort of... Uh, birth it sort of correlates to birth to, to physical birth that's what John 3 is all is getting at Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus and then communion correlates to meals the ongoing nourishment where we come together and share a meal 
together. Yeah. And that is where we find our identity. We find our individual identity in community. Mm. And so the Bible blends those beautifully. Uh, and so in that sense, the Bible helps us Westerners to see that our community is more, or our identity is more than just our individualism. Mm-hmm. And it helps Easterners come to grips with more of a individualistic approach. This is something that I thought was fascinating in my time in seminary with many fellow seminarians and friends who were from East Asia. And they, they were all very much learning and appreciating mm-hmm. the individualism of of the Western world, uh, but they had something to offer us as well that I thought was really helpful and, and fun. Yeah, and doesn't this show, it shows a couple things as we try to apply a lot of these truths to life. Um, the breakdown of the family. So we have seen that as individualism and self-expression becoming the God of our age, as that has ascended, the family a desire to marry, a desire to have children, a desire to be a part of a family has not evaporated in secular culture, but it is, um, it has been greatly diminished. Right. Um, and so when absolute individualism takes hold, then we shouldn't be surprised when people don't want to be part of a messy family where you have to forgive and, mm-hmm. and, and even and attach there are expectations and obligations. Yeah, yeah, and attach part of your identity, your very identity, mm-hmm. to that other person. Um, you know, I, maybe I don't thank my wife as much, but uh, about this, but the the simple fact that she took my name, mm-hmm. that she took my last name, think about what that does for her identity. Um, leaving her father's name mm-hmm. behind and and cleaving to me, her husband. Mm-hmm. And taking my name is a signifier of identity. Now this is my yeah, family. Very much. And uh, a lot of people don't want to do that. That's why people change their names often today. It's more and more common for people to make their own name. Sure, sure. And um, yeah, there's uh, all kinds of issues, of course, with that as sort of self-definition, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we've seen that pure individualism, if that is all that marks our identity, what that ends up leading to is uh, less of a desire to be in community with people who are different. Um, It it, it ends up being a nation of people in silos. And you just find the silo with all people who think like you. The people who are like you. And that's your safe little space where you don't have to encounter you know, the the people who don't think like you. And it just couldn't be further from life in the church. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's very related to the mega church movement, by the way, where... And there's an anonymity there, too. At that, and that's right what I'm getting at, is that um, faith, if faith is individualistic, then I can go to church and know nobody there. Yeah. And, and be um, known by nobody there. Be known, yeah. And... and what is that saying about their Christian identity? It's saying it's between me and Jesus. It's an individualistic thing. Right, and there's no obligation to be a part of this community, to serve this community, to to be, <laughs> to help this, communi- this church community serve our broader community. I can just kind of, sort of come and go. Or find my little friend group. Find, find my little yeah. friend group, uh, get the... Get the mug that has my church's name and post it on my Instagram, <laughs> right? So I can kind of attach myself to this church. But yeah, there's there's sort of a uh, transientness, yeah, transient transience to it. And what it, the sad thing, it's like we're not we're not just berating people with the law to keep you down. I would want to call people into community for their benefit. Yeah. So that's the thing that makes me so sad about the megachurch movement. It's not. Well, if I was going to be really honest, yeah, maybe a lot of it is jealousy that <laughs> that um, that that would be pretty great to have all those people listening to me on Sunday. Mm-hmm. That's a sinful motive that I would have in criticizing megachurch, move mm-hmm. the magic, the movement. But I think the righteous motive that I would have in criticizing it would be that people are missing out on what it means to be the body of Christ, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty huge matter. They're missing out on um, knowing this family that is baptizing their child. And so in our little church, 
everybody knows that family. Mm-hmm. And when we make that promise to raise this child up, um, the vast, vast majority of people making that promise will do something directly for that child yeah. in teaching and encouraging and serving coffee someday when they're teenagers and mm-hmm. helping with youth group. There's this awesome community of people that know each other and are known by one another. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it would probably blow the mind of a lot of mega church goers how interconnected, uh, same thing again, communion. Um, mm-hmm. We define ourselves not just by who we are, but we're a part of this church. And when I look over at uh, Joe and and so forth, I know a lot of the things that they're going through. Mm-hmm. And uh, that helps me grow in my self-awareness in, a, in a, an amazing way. Yeah, And so people who are, there's there's an irony there. People who are totally disconnected out of a desire to be individualistic mm-hmm. actually won't end up learning as much about themselves <laughs> because they won't have that that correction from the neighbor who might even know my wife for example. My wife knows things better about me sometimes than I know about myself. And that's Great the church is that writ large in a lot of ways. Um yeah, I see so and so struggling with um, conspiracy theory or uh, or so forth, and I'm like, man, I I know, I know this isn't you, man. I know that uh, that that you love the truth mm-hmm. and and that um, you trust in Christ, and you can and, hopefully speak into their life because they know that you love them exactly. And so there's this interconnectedness, and and because of that, a greater understanding of who I am. Yeah, there's this. Great quote that all of what you just said made me think of. Uh, I don't know the exact quote. I don't even know the exact reference, but it comes from C.S. Lewis. And I, I, I've, I've read the story somewhere, so I, it's sort of vague in my mind. But the idea is very important to me. So it, it was after one of the after a death of one of his close friends, and this this close friend of his and another close friend, three of them would would often get together. And so after this friend died, somebody said, well, hey, look, look on the bright side. You'll, you'll get to have more time with that other friend, just the two of you, and you'll, ha- you'll have more of him to enjoy. Hmm. And Lewis said something along the lines, if I remember correctly, of saying, actually, I'm going to have less of the friend that's still alive hmm. because there are parts of him that were only brought out by the friend that is now gone. Yeah. And so what what Lewis is communicating there is that who we truly are is not just who we are in the abstract by ourselves when we're alone in our room and we're defining for ourselves who we are and trying to come to our own core. Uh, who we are is, is is inherently connected also to to who we know and to who we love. Hmm. Uh, and and so that is a huge, huge truth i think that we are very much who we who we are connected to who loves us and who we love and who we spend our time with and i'm not just saying how they rub off on us but mm-hmm. we we share something together and that's a p- small picture in a microcosm you could say of the church uh where when somebody dies we don't just lose that person we lose what that person brought out of everybody else. Uh, and so that's also yeah. some, a joy of having new life is that there's, mm. there's new possibilities. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, and, that's just an interesting thought. I think when it's all woven together by grace too, I think that, um, as, as people discover other things about others that they don't like, <laughs> then that's going to require a lot of grace. And that's, Oh, yeah. where that community often breaks down is you're different than me and I can't have grace towards that, towards a, a bad idea or even just a personality difference. And, and we're so, a very graceless society yeah. now too. This yeah. I mean, that's cancel culture in a nutshell. And so don't we see the connection between intense individualism and gracelessness? Yeah. So somebody who isn't like me doesn't deserve my attention. Yeah. They got to be canceled. They got to be deplatformed, you know, and all that. So anyways, uh, you asked me earlier what, the answer would be to who am I? I think Q&A 1 of the Catechism totally nails it. Hmm. I, who am I? I belong, body and soul, and life and in death, 
to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Amen. and so hopefully that is who you are as well as the listener, that you belong to Jesus. And that belonging is both a belonging of being welcomed into a new family, kind of belonging to a family, but it's also a belonging of now serving Christ, um, that we've been purchased by him with his own blood. So um, yeah, that's who we are. And it's an awesome identity. So hopefully people live into it. And we've encouraged you to embrace that identity, um, yeah. that person that God says you are if you trust in Jesus. Yeah, guys, we, we thank you for listening. We hope this has been a helpful episode for you to think through uh, what it means to be a person, what it means to identify as a follower of Christ, and what that should look like when it comes to all the ways we're tempted to identify mm. Uh, through other competing ways. And so, as always, we look forward to hearing from you. Please uh, message us, comment, like, subscribe, all of that stuff. And we'll be with you again next week. All right, see ya. God bless.